What a privilege it is to present to you from McAllister's class of 1961, former Secretary General Kofi Annan. Mr. Annan served for nearly a decade as Secretary General of the United Nations, beginning in 1997, and his accomplishments are truly too long to recite today. Suffice it to say, Mr. Annan was an extraordinarily capable and passionate advocate, perhaps the most passionate advocate in the history of the United Nations, an advocate for eradicating poverty, for preventing conflict, and promoting democracy, a tireless promoter for human rights, a mobilizer in the global fight against the AIDS HIV pandemic, a tireless fighter for women's rights, and a person who by all accounts and agreement truly revitalized and left the United Nations in a stronger position than he found it. It is no wonder indeed that in 2001, his efforts and success were recognized when he and the United Nations were awarded the, the Nobel Peace Prize for their work in creating a better organized and more peaceful world. Now, Mr. Annan, here at McAllister, we like to think that your training for all these life's accomplishments started right here on this campus. And indeed, we think that your classmates recognized your potential in you when, they were, when you were here together when they elected you as president of the Cosmopolitan Club. Remember that service? Yeah? The Cosmopolitan Club was designed and in business to improve the relationship between American and international students. And so clearly that was in your DNA at a very early age indeed. But I don't want you to think that uh, it was all work and no play for Mr. Annan when he was here at McAllister. In fact, that's rarely said about any student at McAllister. Um, and, and I thought it was worth mentioning, Mr. Annan, uh, that you had quite a distinguished career in extracurricular activities as well. For example, at the time you set an all-time record in the history of McAllister College in the 60-yard dash and leading our track team to a championship in the conference tournament. A very good uh, feat indeed. But I personally am even more impressed with the plaque that hangs in the beautiful new Leonard Center proclaiming you the table tennis champion of McAllister College. <laughs> and there's always, you know, Mr. Annan, a story behind the story. And I knew that you'd been the singles champion because the plaque says so. But only today, I learned, you were also the doubles champion in table tennis. And I learned it because your double, doubles partner, Betty Rudberg Bowl from the class of 61 is here with us. Betty, where are you? Please stand, please stand. <clears throat> Mr. Annan, I'm gonna speak real quietly for a minute. Betty asked me not to tell the audience she carried you every step of the way. <laughs> Some of you may not know that Kofi Annan was the first Secretary General of the United Nations to be elected from the ranks of the staff. And in his farewell address on leaving office when he addressed the staff at the United Nations, he told them that he had come to think of the United Nations as his home. Well, Mr. Annan, here at McAllister, we think of this as your home 
as well. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming home Kofi Annan. Mr. Secretary General, welcome back to Thank McAllister. You. It's always a true pleasure to have you with us. Uh, and thanks for consenting to this intimate uh, and private conversation. <laughs> I, I want to begin with a few questions, perhaps of a more personal mm -hmm. nature. You mentioned earlier today that uh, it had been 50 years since you first arrived on the McAllister campus. Yeah. 40 years, 48 years ago, you graduated uh, from McAllister mm -hmm. and began a journey that eventually took you to one of the most uh, demanding uh, and visible and influential jobs in the world. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could reflect on some of the key decisions you made along the way in your own life uh, that eventually uh, led you to become Secretary General of the United Nations. Well, let me, first of all, my dear friends, tell you how happy I am to be here. And I agree with you, it is a home. Um, my long international journey began here. And I think um, when I left McAllister, I went to first to do a summer assignment in New York, again with a Minnesotan company, with Pillsbury. Uh, worked with them at the Rockefeller Plaza office for a couple of months and then went to the Graduate Institute in Geneva to do graduate studies. It was after that, there that I joined the international system and I was with World Health Organization. After a couple of years, there was a yearning on my part to go to the, to the field, to the developing country, to one of the difficult uh, assignments. So I applied for two vacancies. One was in Congo Brazzaville, the other was in Egypt. I didn't get either of them. And I think um, the, the head of personnel felt that as the head of the uh, uh, human resources department, he should assign the staff to where they wanted to go, not necessarily what they have applied for, even though it was advertised. I applied for Egypt and Congo. He called me and he said, um, we want you to go to India. I said, but I didn't apply to go to India. <laughs> he said, we have an ass assignment there. Luckily for me, the head of the Indian office said, he seems uh, qualified, but he's too young. And he'll be supervising men old enough to be his father, and it won't work. So I said, well, I didn't apply for it. He doesn't want me. May I go to Congo or Egypt? <laughs> he said, I'll come back to you. In the meantime, he threw in Manila. I said, why Manila? He called me later, two, two weeks later, and said, final offer, you're going to Copenhagen. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'm not going to Copenhagen. He said, well, you said you wanted the field. You wanted a field assignment. We have only one headquarters, and any office outside this headquarters is a field. Copenhagen is a field, and you're going to Copenhagen. So I said, I'm, I'm sorry. <clears throat> I'm not, uh, so I resigned. I said, I quit. 
And he was uh, quite surprised, didn't speak to me for about uh, two weeks, and I quit. And this is the arrogance of youth. I was confident that something else will come up. So I took three months off. I had uh, just got married and drove around Europe for three months, and I went to Copenhagen to look at it. I had never been there. I went to look at it, and honestly, I didn't see any difference between Copenhagen and Geneva. And for me, it was in the field. So when I came back, I had several offers, including one from uh, Ethiopia. So I ended up in Ethiopia in the days of the emperor working with the African uh, United Nations Economic Commission. Stayed there for six years and then uh, stayed on. And it was a, a time also I had to take a, a difficult decision whether I wanted to go back home or stay with the international uh, service. And I was asking myself lots of questions. Who am I? Where am I headed? What is it all about? How do I make a contribution? So I took a year off and started modeling things in my head. In fact, went to uh, the Sloan School at MIT as a fellow, spent a year there. Um, and then decided I would go home and test it. So not long after that, I went home for two years. We had a military regime in place. And it was a, a difficult situation because they constantly interfered in every decision. So I left again. After two years, I decided that they were not ready or I was ahead of them or whatever. So I went back to the international system and stayed on um, changing assignments and all this. And I think perhaps the most important one which prepared me or brought me to the attention of the international community was um, after the first Gulf War, I had to go to Iraq to help get out of the country about 900 international uh, officials who were working between Iraq and Kuwait and were uh, stuck there, and then got involved with the Western hostages who had been taken by Saddam and placed at strategic locations. I visited some of them at a dam where Saddam felt those uh, installations may be bombed, but if they were there, it would deter military attack on those people. So in the process, I also discovered there was another group of um, hostages, if you wish, about 500,000 of them. But everybody, we had all focused on the 22,000, uh, it was 2,200 Westerners. They were declared hostages because they wanted to leave. They had the means and the money to leave, but the Iraqis wouldn't let them leave because of the uh, host, um, strategic, uh, uh, their hostage taking it. Then we discovered the 500,000 were mainly Asians from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, who were working for families in Iraq and the other areas. They were beggared overnight. Their, uh, their employers vanished, the banks were closed, so they had neither the means nor the organization to leave. 
but they were not considered hosts because they were free to go, but they simply couldn't leave. So we had to arrange to get them all out. And then, of course, things moved on from there. I became head of the UN peacekeeping operations, which I accepted to do. And at the time I left, we had uh, 75,000 troops around the world, which I was responsible for. And that was also a very interesting experience, trying to marry military and civilian culture. And this is something that I think we all have, uh, confront when we bring different experiences and cultures together. And, and I think uh, some of these changes taken on the tough assignments in Iraq, the military peacekeeping operations and running it, also helped me move on. But honestly, I had not expected to become a secretary. I had no dream of it. It had never happened that somebody from the rank was made secretary general. The organization always reached outside. And so uh, the decision was made late. When they started mentioning my name, I thought it wasn't going to happen, but it did happen. Each of us leaves jobs, I think, with certain feelings of satisfaction and certain feelings of regret. Uh, as you look back on your, on your two terms as Secretary General, from what do you derive the most satisfaction uh, and what, what leaves you feeling the most regret? Mm -hmm. I think perhaps when we look at the world we, we live in and the violence we see across the world and the, the um, uneven application of international law and respect for human rights, I would say perhaps uh, one of the contributions that I'm most proud of is the emerging norm of responsibility to protect. The norm basically argues that governments have responsibility to protect their citizens. And in situations where the government is manifestly failing to do so, or the government itself is a culprit in brutalizing its people, the international community should intervene through the Security Council, basically saying you cannot use sovereignty as a shield behind which you brutalize your people. At the last summit, which we, I organized in New York before I stepped down, the member states embraced this concept. But of course, it also places responsibility on all of us that some crimes are so shameful that we cannot sit back and do nothing. You know, we need to uh, collectively say we cannot take this. This is enough. We have to do something about it for our own common humanity and for the victims. Uh, and that is uh, something that it will take time to take hold, but it is uh, coming. In fact, some saw Kenya as one of the first successful applications in the sense that the international community intervened early. We were united. I had the support as a chief mediator of the US, of the European Union, of the African Union. We spoke with one voice. We coordinated our efforts and were able to stop the atrocities after 1,500 people had been killed and 300,000 people uh, displaced. But it requires prompt and effective action. You have to move in early to nib it uh, in the bud. On the negative side, one regret I had, which I tried very hard, was to try 
and work with the member states to get the Security Council reformed. The Security Council needs to be reformed. We cannot continue to accept a situation where the members derive their positions as a result of uh, World War II uh, victories. The world is changing and we need to change with it. We cannot continue to accept a situation where a country like India is not on the Security Council. Japan, which pays, uh, is the second contributor, second highest contributor, is demanding to be on it. Where the whole of Latin America doesn't have a permanent seat. The whole of Africa doesn't have. So you need to reform the council to make it more representative and more democratic. And if you do that, it would also gain in greater legitimacy. We had very good proposals, and I think uh, with a bit of support from key member states, it could have been done, but they have to do it now. I mean, uh, if they do not, now you have really important emerging countries in the world. China, India, Brazil, uh, South Africa. And these uh, countries are not going to sit back and not insist on having a voice that is commensurate to their influence and their economic uh, uh, power. So those, uh, I know this is difficult because there are two things I've discovered in life, and I think most of you probably would agree with me, two things that people find it extremely difficult to give up, privileges and subsidies. <laughs> they, they don't want to let it go. So those who have the privileges now, the permanent five and powerful countries in the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, have to sit and think very hard as to how much power they are prepared to give up to make the participation of the newcomers meaningful. If they do that, we are going to live in a world where they will cooperate. If, you, if it doesn't happen, we are going to head towards a possibly destructive competition. One of the great challenges of leadership is often the tension between pragmatism and personal, moral, or ethical belief. Was there ever a time in your role as Secretary General when you felt as if uh, you had to do something that went against your personal, moral convictions in order to serve the greater good? Yeah. That tension you confront at times, but perhaps you confront it in a different sort of way. I think one of the uh, moments uh, I had to confront that was uh, during the Kosovo uh, War. Um, the US and the NATO forces had, had to take took military action in Kosovo. And you will recall it was without the approval, specific approval of the Security Council. And normally, if you're going to take that sort of action, which is not direct defense of a nation under threat, but a broader uh, interest, it is always better to get a Security Council approval because it's the only body that can confer the legitimacy that will be uh, required. The British, the US, and the French who were leading the 
uh, operation did not want to push it to a vote in the Security Council because they felt Russia and China would veto a military action in Kosovo. And our Secretary General, who is, should normally, who should be guided by the Charter and uh, uh, the norms of the UN, I had a difficult decision to make whether I supported action in Kosovo to protect the Albanians in Kosovo who were under tremendous pressure by the Serbs and in, in some situations brutally so, or invoke the Charter and play safe and say without council approval you don't do it. I took the position that there are times when you have to use force in support of peace and in protection of individuals. And I knew that was going to cause problems for me with the Chinese and the Russians. But I felt it was the right thing to do, and I went ahead and did it. Over time, their objections and anger subsided, and we restored our normally good relations, our usual good relations. Former UN Secretary General and 2001 Nobel Peace Prize winner Kofi Annan in a conversation this week with McAllister College President Brian Rosenberg. Annan was back at McAllister's alma mater earlier this week for a ceremony at the new Institute for Global Citizenship. That conversation was presented by the Institute in collaboration with the Westminster Town Hall Forum at Westminster Presbyterian Church. We'll have more from that conversation in just a couple of minutes. For a fresh eye on today's stories, read News Cut. Bob Collins brings you new angles on big stories and finds the little stories you might have missed. News Cut at minnesotapublicradio.org, your online source for news that matters about Minnesota. Right now you'll find on News Cut great information about one of the governor's closest advisors. Programming supported by the Minnesota History Center, featuring Minnesota's greatest generation, the Depression, the war, the boom. A new exhibit featuring true stories starts May 23rd. Special events all Memorial Day weekend. More at mnhs.org. Catch up on the news. Here's Tony Randolph. Good afternoon. As promised, Governor Pawlenty has vetoed a tax bill that Minnesota Democrats approved at the last minute. The bill had called for $2.7 billion in revenue and delayed payments, so Pawlenty could have to make some hefty cuts in state spending to balance the budget. Officials in Austria say Fargo journalist Roxana Saberi left there this morning on a flight for the United States. The 32-year-old Saberi spent four months in an Iranian prison after a closed-door trial where she was convicted of spying. She was freed on May 11th and went to Austria for a week. California lost more than 63,000 jobs in April, the leader among 44 states that took an employment hit for the month. Despite government hopes job losses would ease, the recession continues to take a toll on workers. Texas, Michigan, and Ohio had the next highest losses. Minnesota lost 9,500 jobs last month. There's been a surge in fighting in Somalia as hundreds of government troops attacked insurgents north and south of the capital. One witness says a busload of fleeing civilians was hit. The fighting follows a lull in the strong insurgent advance on Mogadishu and has killed at least 15 people. Partly cloudy today with a chance of thunderstorms in the north. Highs from the mid-60s to the low 70s. Right now it's 70 in the Twin Cities. Those are the headlines. Now back to you. Thanks, Tony. It's uh, about 12.30, and this is Midday on Minnesota Public Radio News. Let's get back to Kofi Annan, former Secretary General of the United Nations. 
Kofi Annan is a 1961 graduate of McAllister College. He was back at his alma mater this week to attend the unveiling of a sculpture in his honor. He also spoke to students and staff about critical issues facing the global community. He was interviewed by the president of McAllister, Brian Rosenberg. How would you assess the state of the United Nations in the world today? What, what is your prognosis uh, for its future? I think the UN is an, is an essential organization. Like all institutions, it's not perfect. It can do better. But when you look at the, uh, the world we live in today, when we all agree that we are in a global village, you do need an organization like the UN. All communities here in uh, McAllister, the Twin Cities area, any other community, every community is tied together by shared values. And we do have those shared values in our global world through the UN Charter, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and other issues. And our attempts to strengthen international law. I often say that if the global community has uh, a language that allows us to communicate effectively, and it is international law. And, uh, and the UN really does stand there uh, for that. But it has to be strengthened, and I've referred to the Security Council reform. We also have to get member states to understand that in this globalized world, they cannot begin to continue to operate by looking often at their selfish national interest. And we need to look at the collective interest, the collective good, and often the collective interest is the national interest but we have a tendency not to look at things in those uh, terms. I look at the European Union. It's, it's a remarkable achievement. It's only 27 countries. The UN is 193. They have incredible uh, tensions, and it's very difficult to um, um, get them to agree on certain things. First of all, at least one issue we've resolved at the UN, we have two working languages, French, and English, but we have six official languages, French, English, Chinese, uh, Spanish, uh, Arabic, and French. In the EU, each member state's language is official. So when you go to Brussels, you hear all the 27 uh, languages. But it's, it's a remarkable project I mean, uh, I, I speak to older people, people in their 80s and 90s. They cannot believe the journey in Europe, where Europe is. I mean, it was only about 60 years ago when the war ended. And yet today, as far as I'm concerned, war in Europe, a real war in Europe, is inconceivable. I know we have this situation in Georgia. But I, war in Europe today, is in, I may be surprised, but I don't see it. So, by working together and giving up a bit of our uh, sovereignty to be able to uh, uh, get on together because you cannot today be safe at the expense of the other. You cannot be prosperous at the expense of the other. We've seen the economic crisis has taught us that. And if you're going to approach the world in those terms, you do need a UN, but a UN that will be restructured and made fit for the 21st century. 
You mentioned in your remarks um, a moment ago a globalized world, and globalization is one of those terms that provokes a very wide range of responses, positive and negative. Uh, I'm wondering what, what thoughts come to mind for you when you hear that term and whether on balance you believe that globalization has been a, a force for the positive or the negative. Yeah. No, I think globalization has been positive. It's brought us lots of uh, benefits. Uh, but I have always uh, worried about it in the sense that there were people who were being left out and on the margins. And I was also concerned that uh, if we did not handle globalization effectively and at least gave everybody a chance to participate in the opportunities globalization offered, that we would have a backlash. I mean, we've seen some of it with workers saying you are sending our jobs to China, with uh, others saying we should uh, close our doors. We are more environmentally sensitive than the other country that's exporting here and so forth and so forth. And it was with that concern about giving globalization a human face and getting everyone to have a sense that they can participate and benefit from it that I proposed the establishment of the Global Compact 10 years ago at the World Economic Forum in Davos where I encouraged global country, companies, multinational companies, to embrace nine principles in areas of human rights, core labor standards, and the environment. We eventually added a, a tenth principle, the fight against corruption, and work in partnership with governments, with civil society, with universities and research centers, and that has worked quite well with about 5,000 companies across the world who are members of the Global Compact. And it has led to private-public partnerships, which have been really uh, in incredible. I mean, I can give examples. I recall when we set up the Global Fund to fight HIV, AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis, the price of the medication for AIDS was so high that I invited the chairman of the seven largest multi, uh, pharmaceutical companies to meet with me in Amsterdam to discuss how we can take steps to ensure that the medication could reach the poor and would be affordable. The first meeting was an interesting one. Several of them said, I remember one CEO saying, I don't even know why I'm here. I can't discuss this issue. I'll be accused of a price fixing. I said, well, price fixing is done to maximize profits, to increase profit. Here, I'm asking you to reduce, uh, <laughs> uh, to lose money. I'm asking you to lose money. Who's going to accuse you of uh, price fixing? And they were, at that time, also arguing about protecting their intellectual property. And so I had to tell them, I said, there's no way you're going to pro protect your intellectual property if there is medication that can save lives, thousands of lives, but they can't get it. So we have to find a way out. In fact, at that time, they had a case in South African court against Nelson Mandela because he had threatened to use compulsory licensing to get the medication manufactured in South Africa. And the discussions, I told them that I'm not a public relations expert. But you have to be a real genius to go and sue Mandela in a South African court on an issue like HIV-AIDS. <laughs> <You know? laughs> if, you, 
if you win, you lose. If you lose, you lose, you know what I mean? And so there was no way. So we convinced them to take it out of uh, uh, court and we settled it with Mbeki, who had then taken over quietly. But in the end, they, they, they reduced their uh, prices, although they were worried it would leak back to Europe and America. And the, uh, the medication Neveripin, which is to prevent mother-to-child transmission, which is the cruelest of all transmission, they ended up giving it away free in, in, in some countries. Companies worked with us on uh, logistics, how to move food to the millions of people that we sometimes save, because uh, the business community had experience which we and the, and the civil society could share. I mean, we all travel, and almost every village you go into, you will see a Coca-Cola bottle. And yet we had difficulties distributing vaccines for immunization of children against tetanus or measles and all. How can they get the Coca-Cola bottle to every village? And the vaccines are very small, and we couldn't get them there. What did we have to learn? And we worked with them to improve our distributions and a whole uh, host of things. And so people could see some of the benefits of uh, glo glo globalization, that it wasn't all bad. You, you flew to McAllister directly from Washington, where you had an opportunity to meet with, among others, Secretary of State Clinton, President Obama. Uh, based upon those conversations, upon your general assessment of affairs at the moment, what, what role do you see the United States playing? What role do you believe the United States should play uh, in world affairs? I think the, the, the posture of the current administration is a very encouraging one. We've just talked about globalization and the need for countries to work together. If countries are going to work together, you have to be able to listen to each other. You have to be able to cooperate and accept the fact that the problems and the challenges we face today cannot be resolved by any one country, however powerful, and that we need to pool our efforts uh, to get it done. I think from that point of view, the administration is in the right place. I mean, they have indicated they want to work with others, they want to listen, and this has been warmly received around the world. I travel a lot, and the, the change in their attitude towards uh, Washington and the U.S. is quite remarkable. It's a sea change. Uh, I, I think um, the, uh, the change in policy regarding the climate change is a very positive one. And we are heading towards Copenhagen in December. The U.S. has an important role to play. But let me say simply that U.S., given its uh, power, has a natural leadership position uh, in the world. And uh, people are prepared and other countries are prepared to work with the U.S. But the U.S. must also listen. A good leader has to be a good follower. Uh, this is not, doesn't sit easily with uh, people in Washington. And, and, and I think uh, if the ad administration plays it the way they are playing it, uh, U.S. leadership is going to be accepted and strengthened. I know we're, we're running short of time, and I, I, I can't resist, given all of the time you've devoted to the continent of Africa, uh, mm -hmm. both during your time in the United Nations and since, 
uh, asking you a little bit about that work um, and your views on what it will take uh, to improve significantly mm -hmm. uh, conditions for people across the African continent. I think there are a couple of uh, things that needs to take place. First of all, the African governments need to continue their efforts to strengthen governance and uh, rule of law and, and continue the fight against corruption. They would need to focus on certain areas like agriculture, health, and education. But I think um, there is also a real serious deficit of infrastructure in Africa and um, energy as well. Some of these countries are factories, but in some of them, for 90 days, you have no electricity. If you are a manufacturer and you have 90, 100 days of outages, how do you produce, how do you sustain your business? If you look at the roads and the rail system, it was designed to lead to the coast so that the colonial powers can ship out what the natives have produced, whether it's cocoa, cotton or bananas, but they are not linked up between themselves. And studies have shown that if we can improve infrastructure, create a network between the countries of Africa south of the Sahara, they, would, they can improve trade amongst themselves by $250 billion before they even begin to trade with the other regions. And, and so there is a real possibility for investment in the real economy in, in Africa, both with African resources and the international partners that will give a real boost uh, to the continent. There's also another positive thing happening. I've noticed that bright young men and women who've been trained in countries like the US and some of the European countries who've gained experience are beginning to go back and going back with energy and creativity and wanting to do things. And this happened with India with Argentina, Chile, and Mexico. And I hope this trend will continue and we will end up seeing some of the bright uh, McAllister alumni all heading back to make a contribution. Uh, I want to circle back at the end to a, a more personal question, and I hope you don't mind me asking this, but we've talked about some very weighty affairs, mm -hmm. uh, and, and you are a person of, um, great visibility and importance in the world. But there are moments in each of our lives that remind us um, uh, that after all, at the end of the day, we're just ordinary human beings. And you've, you've told me a story uh, about your, um, your vacation at Lake oh. Como um, <laughs> after you stepped down um, from your yeah, yeah. position in the United Nations. And I'm wondering if you would mind sharing that oh, yeah. story with the group. No, after 10 years as Secretary General, as uh, most of us who've held these types of positions, whether in corporate life or vice president of the United States, first of all, you don't realize how tired you are until you stop, until you stop. And anticipating that I was uh, going to realize how tired I was, Nan and I decided to take three months off and, and really uh, rest. So we went to the Como region, took a house, which was adjacent to the hills. So you could walk out of the house and have a long walk in the woods and the mountains without ever going to the village. And so we didn't want to have television, radio, or newspapers. After six weeks of this, I was beginning to get bored. <laughs> so I told Nan, Let, let's go out and see if we can get a newspaper. 
So we went to the village. We hadn't been in the shop for three minutes when a group of men standing in one corner kept staring at us, and one of them broke away and headed for me. And I turned to my wife and said, oh my God, we have six weeks to go, and we've blown our cover. <laughs> How are we going to manage? This man came to me, put his, hands, uh, his hand out, and said, Morgan Freeman. <laughs> 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 he said, Morgan Freeman, may I have your autograph? <laughs> so I said, sure. <laughs> I, I signed K. Freeman. He was very happy. We were very happy. <laughs> and there were two Italian security officers with us. And one of